Welcome back to the Judo Fanatics podcast. Uh, Today's guest joins us from Sydney, Australia. He is a lifetime judoka and a dual citizen who has national championship titles from both Australia and the United Kingdom. He is the founder of the Judo Way of Life, which is an online portal and podcast for all things judo. You can find his instructionals at judofanatics.com titled Fancy Feet, Awesome Ashiwaza, and It's All in the Hips. As always, I wanted to remind you to give us a follow on Instagram and our Facebook group, both great places to share lots of cool judo content. You can also give me a follow personally on both Facebook and Instagram under the handle CJJudo. My name is Chuck Jefferson, and it is a pleasure to introduce this week's guest, Mr. David Groom. All right, I'm joined here with uh, David Groom. David, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. We're uh, we're off by a couple of time zones, so it's uh, quite interesting. I told my kids I was going to interview you, and um, I reminded them that uh, you know David is already on Saturday morning, and here we are on a late Friday afternoon. But it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, look forward to the conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, actually, when you sent me through that first timestamp, the panic set in. I was like, oh, where, where, where are you located? Just trying to do the maths, trying to figure it out. Right. Um, but you've done the hard work for me, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, before we get into it, I mean, I, I've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast, a lot of um, amazing champions and people of all walks of life, but there's so many people out there that are doing big things for judo, and at the end of the day, that's what I'm interested in. I love to promote those who are passionate about the sport of judo, which we all are. I think all of our listeners are in some fashion or form very interested in the growth and the development of the sport of judo. And I've seen everything you've done from, you know, your podcast and your website and your teaching, your, you know, instructionals that you've done with judo fanatics. So I definitely wanted to reach out to you and and just, uh, you know, share your story with our listeners. So I thought it would be a a great conversation. So I want to get started uh, with your background. You know, like we always ask in the beginning, how did you find judo? Is this something that you did since you were a child? Yeah. So I'm from a small town in the north of England called Baycup uh, and just so happened to have one of the strongest judo clubs in the country at the time. Uh, And I I went there when I was about five or six and it was a very competitive club, even for for kids. It was quite a competitive club Uh, and I I hated it. I did about a month there, got beaten around a little bit and just didn't like it at all. Uh, And then fast forward a few years, uh, my little brother, he he hit the five, six-year-old uh, point and he was like, I want to do judo. Um, I, I, I thankfully, you know, being competitive, I was like, well, okay, well, if he's going, I'll go. Right. I was nine then, um, and then yes, yeah, sort of got really got into it at that point. Um, it wasn't a smooth journey from there onwards. Um, I was pro- well. I'm not going to say I was a soft kid. So I, I had ADD, and I think with that. I was, I become very overwhelmed by things and, uh, you know, like a big shift in emotions would sort of, you know, overwhelm me and I'd sort of panic. And then, you know, going into a new environment, being in judo and getting beaten around effectively, you know, as a kid, it sort of, it was a bit overwhelming. So there were times when, you know, it sort of took me off guard uh, as a kid. So I'm not going to say it was a smooth ride from nine years onwards, but, uh, yeah, definitely stuck at it from then. So I'd, I'd say I've been doing it about 25 years now. Wow. So um, do your family know anything about judo? Like, I'm curious as to, like, that, that's always a, a curious thing for me is like, why is it that your family in the UK chose judo for you when you were five? And then again, even after you didn't like it, your little brother, like, why is it judo? Well, 
like I said, small town, north of England, not very many opportunities, okay. very low socioeconomic area. Uh, and basically the only other sport was soccer. Got it. And don't play well with others. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'd end up, uh, yeah, I was a very individual, individualistic kid. Sure. Uh, and, and my little brother was actually, you know, quite the same. You know, he, uh, he, he was a bit more into sort of team sports. He played a bit of cricket and things, but still, uh, so judo was basically, as I said, the, the judo club was, um, above the library, right in the center of the town. Uh, so it was reasonably well known. And, and the, the coach there, Brian Moore, who's still coaching there now, uh, he's been there since I think the sixties. Um, and he, uh, was uh, the cadet squad manager at the time. Okay. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, that the British team would train for, for the cadet squad in the town. So Got it. It, it would get quite a bit of a, a, like a, an attraction where there was nothing else like that in the area. And so, yeah, so it, it was quite well known. So that's, you know, one of the reasons really got into it. And, uh, and then going back to my, my ADD, it attracted me when I was, when I was nine, um, the fact that there was, so much going on actually had a strange calming sense on me. Um, Interesting. As well as I know I mentioned that, you know, I obviously get the, the emotional bit as well sometimes, but the overall, the, the structure of the judo and the, you know, different throws and you're doing the randori, there's just so much going on. Um, and I'd find it quite calming. Uh, and it helped me a lot as a kid. And I can already reflect on that now as an adult, as a kid, I had no idea what was going on. Right. I, just, I was like, Oh, I like this. Um, so at the time I had no idea. I was just like, okay, this is good fun. I can, I can fight people. Um, I'm not getting told off for wrestling like I was at school. Um, you know, if me and my brother are fighting at home, we'd get told off, but then go to the judo club and they're like, crack on. Right. <laughs> so I was like, all right, this is awesome. So yeah. It's pretty interesting to me to hear like there's these little pockets around the world because as a whole, judo in most places is not super popular, but then there are these little pockets in small towns in every country, you know, there's certain small towns. Like, I, I, I came from a very small town in California. Judo is definitely not popular, but the guy who I grew up with, Ernie Smith, he had been in this judo club, or he'd run this judo club in this small town for more than 30 years. So there's, like, multiple generations of kids. So within that small town, although judo's still not popular, it's known, and people talk about it, and he's kind of got this, you know, people talk about his program, and it's known in the community to be a good place to send your kids. And... I think that that happens in a lot of ways all over the world. And that's like how we grow judo one small little club at a time. I think it's the, um, where there's a passionate individual. So like I say, Brian Moore, my coach is an incredible human. He's so passionate about the sport. And uh, like, even now, like I've I've been living in Australia for six years, you know, he's still my judo coach. If I needed him for anything, I know I could ring him and he'd be there for me. Um, And you know, it's just that, that passion. And I think people will gravitate towards that. And I think, from my experience, you like you say, like, so, um, when I trained in, in Kendall judo club, you know, Kendall's well known for judo. And again, it's just those little personalities. So I told him McConnell, uh, Mike Liptrop that's there now. Uh, and then the same moving to Sydney, there's like little pockets around the city where there's these people with, um, very large personalities, uh, very passionate about the sport and, and people I think just gravitate towards that. Right. So you spent most of your childhood or all of your childhood in the UK. So you grew up in the UK and, and I know that you had some great success as a competitor in the UK. Tell us about your uh, competitive days, the, the prime time of your athletic career. Yeah. So I mean, I pretty, I started competing, competing, I think after a month of doing judo, um, <laughs> the coach was like, do you want to have a go? And I was like, yeah, all right. Got beaten up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember it quite vividly, actually. I, I got beat by four people, and I went off to have a little cry in the changing rooms. Right. Um, and then the um, 
the table official came and gave me a, t- a telling off. Never, never leave, never leave the table again. Right. And, um, <laughs> and I went back and I was all crying. I turned out I had one more fight and I went out and threw this lad um, in the first sort of five seconds. And, and I was like, all right. And then pretty much from there onwards, I was sort of like, uh, I was hooked on it. And, you know, so I've got, got rolling along and, uh, at the 11, so after a couple of years, I was invited to start training with the, the Northwest area. So that's the area of the, um, of England. Um, and again, that was like a bit of a big jump for me. And, you know, as I mentioned, you had sort of those overwhelming moments. That was like one of those sort of moments where at first I was like a bit hesitant and then got into it. And through that, I went to, um, complete my first national championships, got beaten up there. Uh, pretty much and you know then carried on and then you know got to the uh, did the first competition abroad went to Sweden I think when I was 12 um, and it was just these little moments where you know I'd, I'd sort of um, I sort of pretty much just get beaten up have a terrible not a terrible time but like I wouldn't do well um, but thankfully the, the the support of the coaches and my parents just kept you know keep going you know trusting the process and then yeah started to sort of come good um, maybe 13, 14, started to start having, you know, like higher level success, won my first medal abroad, uh, won my first national championship medal. Um, and then, you know, so I started to roll on from there and um, got selected for the Cadet European Championships at 15, which okay. was probably like the, re- the first really big major tournament that I did. Right. Uh, and I went, I went with, I think I'd only ever won one other medal in Europe abroad, uh, before that. Um, and, you know, so went with absolutely zero expectations of anything. Um, and I think it put me in sort of the, the best possible mindset really for the competition. I, was, I, I had an absolute blinder of a day right. um, and came away with a bronze medal. Um, and that sort of, from that point onwards, it was like a real turning point. Cause I think people started to go, Oh, okay. Well, you know, maybe there is something here. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, I got sort of fast tracked onto the junior team. Uh, I was taken to a few junior tournaments from there and, from that moment really was where, you know, things sort of changed, uh, competitively for me. What's the identification process like in the UK? I mean, you're 15 years old as a cadet. That's actually a pretty young cadet because cadet typically goes some, there's 16, I guess it 15, 16s for the most part. So yeah. after you win a bronze medal at the Europeans, that's a pretty major event. Are people in the UK, like, is the phone ringing? They're like, okay, what's next? So here's what you got to do. You got to move to new training center. What's it like at this point when you win this tournament? Or you take your bronze medal? Yeah, like I said, I got fast-tracked onto the junior team. At the time, that was being run by uh, Graham Randall, I think was coaching, yeah. and uh, Neil Eckersley okay. was with it, were, you know, the, the coaches uh, around that time. Uh, and I got taken to some of the junior A tournaments. I think it was uh, Lyon in France uh, competed there. Um, and the, the junior A tournament in Poland, I think my first two. Yeah, from there, so it was, you know, getting invited more at Bisham Abbey was a training centre. So I was I was a bit too young to be obviously be going to any kind of full-time setup at 15. I still had to finish school. Sure. Uh, I was still going through all of that type of thing. But uh, I was getting invited to the, the senior programmes, you know, the training camps, uh, and just doing uh, a lot more uh, competing as well. I was competing at that point. Uh, the back end of my cadet, I started doing junior tournaments and senior tournaments right. um, in one year. Uh, so it was, it was quite a lot. It was just a lot more training, a lot more competing. Um, and when you were 15, kid, you what, what weight category were you fighting? I'm 81, 181 kilos. So you were a big boy. At 15 years old, you're already 81 kilos. Yeah, so I moved up to 81s. Uh, I think I was like 74 kilos the first time I did 81s. Uh, I was 13. Um, and then I, I just, I was really struggling at 73s. And then 
I went up to 81s and got silver, like had a reasonably big competition in the UK. Yeah. Uh, the first one decided I really, I was like, okay, well, okay, this is my weight now. Um, and then just stuck at 81s from then onwards. I think as a coach now, I, I see it because I didn't really pay attention to it when I was a kid growing up, but those kids like yourself that kind of have a growth spurt early and end up in a, you know, I consider 81s a pretty big category for a 15 year old kid. And the expectations become higher simply based on your size, right? I mean, I think coaches, people look at you, they expect more out of you. They expect more maturity. Do you have any experiences with kids like that now? I mean, I guess when you look at a kid, sometimes I've got kids in my club, they're like really big kids. And I sometimes I forget, I'm like, wow, that, that kid is still only 10 years old. He just has the body of a man already. And I, I think it's, it's hard for those kind of kids growing up because the expectations are, are high and they end up with partners that are much older than them. And that's obviously a challenge as well. Yeah, well, that's what happened with me. Uh, I remember from sort of like 11 year old, I was training with, um, I was training on the senior program um, at the class, you know, and I started off with sort of, a, I'd, I'd do the, the the kids class and then I'd, I'd stay on and do sort of like half an hour, 45 minutes of the senior class at first. And, yeah. um, and then it just sort of progressed from there. I would just do the full, and then it was just don't even bother turning up for the junior class. And yeah, I, for, when I look back on it, it was, it was hard at the time. And, but I was, I was very fortunate because, as again, bake up the club I was at. The, the women's team was phenomenal at the time. We had some of the best women in the country and and the world. And I sort of, as I, my apprenticeship was basically training with these women. Got it. And it was a case of because I was I was tall. I was always tall as a kid, and my body grew faster than my brain was able to keep up. So I was a really clumsy kid, and I didn't really know how to control my body. Basically, Brian was like, well, you know, if you injure any of these women, you're going to be in trouble. Right. So you better learn to move and relax and sort of, you know, play the game type of thing. So uh, I had a pretty tough kind of run with that. And I'm really fortunate. I think that, you know, I attribute a lot of my growth to that. And um, and then so moving 12, 13, uh, there was a guy at the club called Clark Nutter. Um, and he was in his 30s at the time. Uh, another, it was about a 100 kilo player. Uh-huh. And... I, like I attribute a lot of my development to, you know, working with him because there was, you know, um, the club sort of died off a little bit around the Olympics in 2004 because a few of the players were competing and they were down in a different training center. So the sort of the numbers in the club died. Um, I ended up working with uh, Clark Nutter a lot and we would just do an hour and a half of throw for throw. Wow. And he would bounce me around the room. Like <laughs> I'd be flying. And then he just, it just opened up my judo. It was that sort of, um, I mean, he just been thrown that many times. He just like, well, and, and it actually relaxes you. The more you get thrown, I think the better it actually makes you being uh, at throwing because um, yeah. you sort of get that feel for it. Um, and I attribute you know, a lot of my time to that. So I think working with adults at a young age really helped mature my judo. And I, yeah, I've got a few players. You mentioned that. So I've got a, I've got a player now um, I'm working with who's 16 and he's taller than me. He's huge. You know, we're doing a lot of strength work. Because again, his body's just grown so fast that, he, you know, he can't, he hasn't got the strength and his muscles haven't sort of matured yet. Uh, he's got a long way to go for that. Right. Um, so we know working him on a program just to help build a bit more sort of glute strength um, and lower back strength, core strength. So when, you know, somebody big grips him over the top, he doesn't just buckle at the waist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think for me, working with a lot of adults was, it was at first it was challenging, but looking back on my judo career, I'm really fortunate that I had that that exposure, uh, you know, and it's helped me a lot. Uh, and I, I know, and I try and now pass that on to the younger players who are, you know, sort of the bigger, the bigger players in the club. You know, I think, well, I'm, I'm now that 30, 30 odd year old, right. You know, and I'm helping out now those teenagers that are coming through and, you know, making sure I'm giving them a constructive hard time. Sure. You know, so beating them around a little bit, but in, in a way where hopefully they're going to learn from it 
um, and then also be able to grow as judo players. Yeah, I think that that balance that you're talking about is important, and some people are not good at it. You know, you have like the uh, you have you ever train in Japan? You have the Kohai Senpai system, and you have good senpais and bad senpais. You know, just because somebody's older than you and they can beat you up doesn't mean that that's all they're supposed to do. And I've seen it go both ways, even in in, in that system in Japan, where you have this older guy who just mistreats all the younger people. And then you have the ones that are true mentors and really have their best interest at heart. And they're really trying to develop them as people and develop them as judo players. And as a coach, that's what we're doing now. But sometimes in the dojo setting where it's not really a coach, maybe it's just a player that's slightly older. That's where the balance comes in as a coach. You know, I have to kind of intervene and say, hey, look, like this kid's three years younger than you. I know he feels strong, but he's significantly younger than you, not as mature you've got to kind of play at his level and maybe just a notch higher. You know, that's kind of the way I put it. Yeah. That's something I try, um, with the, with my junior class. So we, sometimes you have a bit of a spread on the junior class for the kids. Yeah. Um, and I'll purposefully put some of the bigger kids on with the little kids, you know, and I'll, I'll have a little quiet word with them and just, just remind them, you know, you look after them, please. Cause I think it's good for them to learn. Um, and you know, at that age, they sort of don't always understand their own strength. As a kid, you know, they're not that um, self-aware. Right. And I think it's good for them to learn that control. And I I, I obviously monitor the situation and make sure everything's, everything's all good. And if it's not going as, as, um, as planned, I'll, I'll intervene, Um, which sometimes, you know, it doesn't always go um, as, as uh, constructively as I'd I'd hope. Uh, But then I also try and explain to the kids, like, obviously it's my, it's my responsibility as a coach to try and help those kids understand what's going on. And to show them, okay, listen, you know, you're a little bit bigger. You're using your strength to dominate someone. Try using technique, move them around, right. uh, you know, and try and educate instead of just telling the kid off and then going, oh, well, you told me to go on with them. Right. You know, why, why, are you, why are you now telling me off for throwing this person around? <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I try and, I try and expose some of the kids um, to that kind of dynamic uh, early on, because I, I think it's good for them to learn. As a teenager, do you remember in your in your own dojo were you ever involved much as as a coach? I mean, I know a lot a lot of people, you know, end up helping with the kids' classes when you're a teenager, and I feel like it's actually a very good practice as a competitor to be involved in in some ways to be an instructor and to kind of have that. You know, you have a different point of view when you start teaching because you know, as all old people, we always say like, "I wish I would have, you know, knew all these things back then." But I think when you you're growing up, you're a teenager, you, you, it's all about you, right? You're training hard all the time. But if you can step back and say, I'm going to help out those 12-year-olds and see if I can kind of look at it from a different point of view to see if I can help them. And I think there's a lot of benefit for, uh, I've talked to a lot of really successful judo players and a lot of them believe that helping teach really improved their own game as fighters. Yeah, so I was, I was fortunate. I was asked to be uh, like an assistant coach on the junior uh, class back in at Bay Cup when I was uh, so 14, 14, okay. 15, around that age, uh, you know, I'd take the warm up and I'd be the, the coaches, um, throwing dummy, uh, right. for the demonstrations. And, uh, and then, you know, I'd go around and, you know, any of the kids needed any help, I'd, you know, provide this sort of bit of guidance, but I wasn't really, I wasn't really teaching any of the techniques at that time. Uh, but then I'd do the randori with the kids. And for me, I was always, I could only ever do foot sweeps. That's all I was ever allowed to do on kids. And again, it was, you know, using the timing, you no know, kind of strength. And, um, you know, the kids love being sort of thrown around and, you know, going on with the, the, this big kid, uh, who's like, sort of like five, six years older than them, you know, yeah. they thought it was great. Uh, and, and for me, why, um, well, I was told by my coach to get out of it. So obviously there's that mutual benefit in terms of learning was to, to practice foot sweeps. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, that was like the, the beginning of my love for, for Ashiwaza. Um, was That's awesome. There and, I definitely um, want to, we're going to get to that here in a few minutes, but you know, before we uh, start talking about that, because I know you just did some work with Judo Fanatics on your Ashiwaza, which is really cool stuff. So fast forward a little bit, you end up to be, uh, at, at some point, you become a senior national champion in the UK, uh, which is to me, a, a very high level judo player. I mean, the, the national championships in the UK can't be an easy tournament. There's obviously, I, I know a lot of people from the UK over the years, and there's a lot of great judo players that come out of the UK. So becoming a national champion, I feel like you, you made a, a very high level. And then at some point you end up in, uh, in Australia. So tell us, uh, how things played out. How'd you end up in Australia? Do you, want the, uh, do you want the long story or the short story? Well, you tell me, whatever <laughs> you, you think is entertaining. You want. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, my judo in the UK, um, it, it definitely wasn't a smooth uh, ride. Um, there's a few ups and downs in terms of my development as an athlete. Uh, and, you know, that comes down to a lot of the decisions I, I made. Um, and in terms of, we said before about being a big kid at 81s. So I developed as an 81 kilo player and I pretty much went past that point um, and I was cutting a lot of weight uh, and I was doing okay at 81s. I think I got like a, a bronze and a silver at the national championships. And it got to a point though, where I was spending more time thinking about losing weight yeah. than competing. Uh, and a lot of my results um, suffered because of that. And I got a little bit lost along the way in that respect. Um, you know, my focus was uh, too much on the weight loss um, and, you know, I had a bit more, too much of an identity linked to being an 81 fighter. And I was a bit, like looking back on it, I was scared about making that transition to 90s. I'm not scared, but like anxious about it. And sure. that stunted my decision to make that move. Um, and then, yeah, I moved up to 90 kilos. And actually, so um, in 2012, obviously we had the London Olympics and there was a, there was a slim to non-chance that I was maybe going to go to, you know, in my head, I was like, right. There's a few people in front of me. Obviously, Ewan Burton was well ahead. Uh, there's a player called Tom Reed and Tom Davis, uh, myself, uh, you know, and there's a few others, but all I sort of pushing on for that, you know, I thought, you know, let's, let's give it a go at 81s. I'm here now. Uh, let's push on. Um, and obviously nowhere, nowhere near to everything. I was like maybe third, fourth, fifth down the line. So I might as well have been last when you, you know, you're looking at it from that point of view. Sure. Um, uh, but I'd booked a trip for after the Olympics. Um, so I booked a trip for eight weeks in Japan and then to fly down to Sydney to spend four weeks in Sydney and then four weeks in China. Because um, I just wanted to do some traveling. I wanted to just uh, do some judo. Um, it was the third time I'd been to Japan, but I wanted to do a I was in that part of the world. I was like, you know what, let's just see what else is going on over there. Um, so I came down to Sydney. I'd never been here. I didn't know anyone here. Um, and then my coach uh, put me in contact with a guy called Warren Rosser who um, he's, he's one of the big personalities in Sydney. He's got an amazing judo club um, at uh, the University of New South Wales. So I was training there. I've borrowed lots of ideas from him over the years. Yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing guy. Yeah. Um, so knowledgeable um, and a, a great player as well in his own right. Yeah. Um, and then his kids program is just ridiculous how good it is. Um, and he, he's just one of those people that's just made to teach kids judo very knowledgeable and yeah so I, I stayed i slept on his floor for a few days uh, for a week um and i stayed at another another coach's house as well uh, for a week and then during that time i ended up training at a, a judo club called zembu as well zembu yeah. judo club and i met morgan yeah and uh, a very good judo club and you know met all these people um and then you know carried on my travels off i went didn't even think ever that i'd come back or let alone move here um and then 
that's so came back from Australia, uh, China, and um, I'd eaten a few quite a lot of steak pies in Australia, and <laughs> I'd uh, solidified my position as a ninety kilo player. So I came back, told my coach, I was like, "We're moving to nineties." Right. Um, and then for the British Championships, first competition as a ninety kilo player, and got beaten up. It was a big shock. I was uh, like just a, a sort of a heavy eighty one player. I wasn't strong enough. Uh, I wasn't ready for the the challenge of fighting 90 kilos. Right. Um, and that was in January for the nationals were in January um, of that year. Uh, and then they, they changed it to December. So they had the national championships twice in the same year. So it was 2013. Um, so I spent all year doing weights uh, and training. Uh, and then I had a bit of success at some tournaments in Europe. Um, did, did like got okay. I think I got a fifth um, a European um, cup. Uh, I was in, you know, the, the momentum was building. Uh, and then, yeah, fought the Nationals in the 90s and had an absolute blinder of a day. Um, won all my fights. Uh, just, yeah, just everything just seemed to flow. Um, and, yeah, just everything works. And that's always the story behind the National Championships. Nice. Um, and then I sort of took a little bit of a break from judo after that. I was living in Camberley Judo Club at the time. I didn't have a job. Um, I was, like, living off benefits. Um, and I was that was, like, five years of full-time training deep. And I was just so, I just want to give the brain and the body just a bit of a break. Uh, I didn't really know, like, which direction I was going um, and, like, you know, how much I still wanted to pursue judo uh, as, I, like, a high-level competitor. So it, I took a bit of a break. Uh, and then during that time, I, um, I was talking to uh, a friend in uh, a New Zealander called Mark Brewer. Um, and we'd met in the UK years ago, kept in touch. You know, we bumped into, he was trying to go for Commonwealth Games in 2014. And he tried to go for the Olympics as well. So you know, we'd seen each other on the circuit quite a lot around the, around the world. Um, and he was living in Sydney. And I was like, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind getting away, you know, go somewhere different. Um, um, and then my other friend, Michael Hawley, he was living in Edinburgh at the time. Uh, I was like, do I move to Edinburgh? And Mark, you know, he mentioned Sydney and told me about this guy who had a judo club, was looking for a coach, uh, who ended up being Morgan. Uh, yeah, so and then it sort of came to crunch time and uh, Mark Brewer sent me a picture from Bondi Beach. Um, and I think it was the winter at the time. And it was glorious sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> and then and I, I looked at my phone, I pulled up my weather app and I looked at Edinburgh and it was summer. It was like <laughs> cold and wet. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> Time for a bit of sun. Easy choice. Um, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, so I moved, I moved over here and the, the, the intent was literally just to do a year, year and a half and then go back, which is what I did. I did a year and a half and then um, out here and I moved back to England. Uh, I did two months in England. I was like, nope, I'm going back to Australia. Uh, <laughs> and booked a flight, came back out here and I've been here for four, four and a half years now since that point. So okay. just over six years, six and a half years altogether. What's the, um, I don't know what the long-term plan is for you for like immigration process or like citizenship or how, is it legal to just show up and start working? Is that, a, is that kind of a big pain in the neck for a foreigner to come into Australia to do that? Uh, now it, it's changed since I've been here in the six years that I've been here, things have changed and I think has got harder. I, I can't really fully comment on that, but the process I went through, uh, I got a working holiday visa. So right. I came out here on a working holiday visa. I, I knew I had the, the coaching job before I came out here. Got it. As soon as we got here, we started processing the paperwork for sponsorship. So Morgan sponsored me um, to work for him. So uh, I had four years on that visa. Okay. And then after two years on that visa, you can then apply for permanent residency. Uh, and I, so I went through, I went through a business route. 
And, you know, in that process, um, I'd met a girl. So she, uh, we've been together four and a half years now. Um, and so plan B was going to be uh, the de facto. <laughs> right. So if the business visa didn't work out, I made sure I had myself a plan B. Right. Uh, but yeah, we, we did it through that. I went, you know, so, uh, so two years sponsorship and then the application process for permanent resident. So that took about two years. So yeah, f- about five years up to that point. And then um, I got my citizenship this year. So back in June. Uh, I got my, my dual citizenship, so British and Australian. So obviously one of the perks of being part of the Commonwealth means, yeah. you know, we have, we can have that dual citizenship. So yeah, it's Very quite cool. a nice feeling. Yeah. So uh, especially the way the world's going, I think, um, I've been having as many yeah, options, options. <laughs> passports you could pull out your pocket to let you in a country, the better. I, I, I imagine <laughs> that will come in handy at some point. So with, uh, back to like the more judo development, how, now that you've been in Australia for the last I guess five, six, seven years teaching judo at, at Zembu judo, I'm assuming most of the time, how would you compare judo in Australia to judo in the UK? So the judo in Australia has got, from my experience, has got quite a distinct Japanese flavor to it. Japan's quite accessible from Australia. A lot of the players go go there and train. um, And then there's, from my knowledge, there's been a lot of um, exchange. A lot of coaches have come down to Australia as well from Japan and, and coached. Right. So there is a definite traditionalism. Um, I, 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 I hadn't experienced that in the UK. Okay. Right, the club I went to, you know, we never bowed onto the mat. Oh wow! So like everyone would just sort of like drip feed onto the mat, and then you know there'd be you know, you, we'd finish off with the junior session and then the senior session would just start and we'd bow off. And usually the bow off was just a, an opportunity for Brian to sort of take the piss out of us a little bit for, yeah. <laughs> you know, something that had happened or, you sure. know, and then we bow off and, you know, off we'd go type of thing, you know, and then we came out here and, you know, so there's a formal bow at the beginning and yeah. uh, a formal bow at the end. Uh, you know, things were just done in a little bit more of a, a traditional way that I, I had experienced in Japan, but um, hadn't experienced sort of, um, you know, at, at a club level in England before that, uh, to that that same degree anyway. And then the judo's taught very similar, I think, as well. There's a lot more focus on sleeve and lapel judo. Uh, being in England, close to Europe, uh, there's a lot more grip fighting, a lot more, you know, for a long time, I thought a lot of throws were done from the top grip. Yeah. You know, I, I, I thought Haragoshi was done from over the top and also Gary were done from over the top just because that's the way I did it. And yeah. you know, I just thought doing off the lapel was a variation. And then, you know, came out to Australia and, uh, you know, under this um, coaching here and, and that, then obviously having to fall in line with how the club wants things to be coached as well. So I'm obviously allowed a lot of freedom to coach my style of judo yeah. um, and they, they live access different, but then also with the foundational work that I do, you know, I was a bit of a learning curve to be teaching judo in a way that was more traditional. Um, and that's been huge for my development as a judo player. Uh, I've, I've probably learned more maybe in the past sort of four or five years uh, in some respects than I had done in the sort of 20 years before that yeah. about the, the fundamental dynamics of a lot of the throws that I'd been doing just as competition variants. Yeah. Uh, and just I sort of just assume that's, that's how you do judo. And it was like, some of it was like going back to the drawing board and going, oh, okay, actually, no, 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 no. <laughs> got to control the lapel, we're controlling this, and that's why. And then you can take those principles, once you learn the foundation, you can take those principles and the same principles apply regardless of where your grip is. Um, so there's a little bit of that in my development um, yeah. coming out here. I think that for think, the United States, we're probably just like Australia. We're very, you know, huge Japanese influence here in the United States, especially on the West Coast. Lots of, you know, most of the clubs 
Most of the older clubs were started by Japanese immigrants in the 50s and the 60s at the Japanese Cultural Center. So I think probably every club in the United States, or at least a vast majority of them, do the very traditional bow on, bow off. I do it at my club. Uh, I, I'm not Japanese, of course, but I, you know, that's just the way that we've all grown up doing that kind of very traditional. And even the way we teach is pretty traditional. There's a lot of uh, newer thoughts, and even here in California, there's a lot of discussion of like, we kind of have this idea of how to do it, but it doesn't work in competition or, you know, there's these conversations going on, like, why are we still doing it this way? Like, clearly that's not the path to win. And then there's the conversation of is winning what it's all about? You know, like th this is the kind of the trickle down uh, of that whole teaching the traditional way. And, and not that there's either a wrong or right answer. There's just different ways of, of looking at it. And I think that you're seeing that now with the way you grew up in the UK for 20 years of judo. And then you go somewhere that's, just got a little bit of a different twist on it. It's kind of an interesting outtake. Yeah, well, it's really helped my judo in terms of uh, my competition side, you know, and and going understanding the principles more. I've really not changed, but sort of honed my my competitive skills. Yeah, uh, just understanding the the dynamics a little bit better uh, about you know why I'm doing what I'm doing with my hands, with my feet, with the you know hip placement, uh, and then it's just sharpened up a lot of my competition judo. And I think there's a time and a place for all of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I was one of those people that sort of poo-pooed Carter as a, as a useful tool. I was assigned the Carter, whatever. So right. something I had to sort of suffer through whilst I was doing the grading at some point. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's something I think is now quite a, an important part of the sport. Uh, definitely not as important as or any more or less important than anything. It's like a, it's a whole. So you know, it's bringing all those pieces together. And I think when, a lot of people, okay, I can't, uh, European-style judo, you know, you, you, you'll get beaten by a, a good Japanese-style, you know, and it's like, well, maybe, you know, right. was it five out of five times? Who, like, you know, like, right. I, I'm sure there is the statistics out there. I'm sure there is someone that's done all that. But, you know, everyone's beatable. Right. And I don't think any one style is necessarily better than another. Yeah, obviously, Japan had an absolutely incredible Olympics, but, you know, are, are they doing as well in, in Baku right now, you know? Right. It, yeah, it's all ebbs, ebbs and flows. Like I can't remember sure. being in um, in um, London 2012, and the Russians absolutely dominated the Olympics yeah. for the men. Yep. And then and then this Olympics, I don't think they, they barely got a, a sniff of a medal, right? And it just sort of that constant changing and shifting, and uh, so I don't think there's any real sort of this is more important than that for me. It's all they're all I don't know, equally important. It all comes together to make a full package of a judo player. Yeah, I think that that's kind of what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about teaching when you're younger. Because when you're younger, you never have that thought. Like when I say younger, I mean, even when I was competing through my 20s, like I don't think I cared why it worked. I just wanted to make sure that it worked. Like if I was able to throw somebody, like it it, it was working just fine. And then when you start teaching, you know, when I first opened up my judo club, like I'm in my 30s already. And you start getting some people asking you questions. You're like, why do you do it that way? And I'm like, wow, I never... Sometimes there, there's been times where I was kind of stumped as an instructor going, but I, I got to really think this through. Like, why do I put my foot there? Why do I move this direction at this time? And as an instructor now for the last 10 years, you know, I've put, I've put a lot of time and, and some of these uh, students who sometimes are, you know, ask maybe too many questions, you know, now as a teacher, I don't think there's really any bad questions. There might be bad timing for a question, but there's no bad questions, you know, and, and sometimes an athlete that asks me a lot of questions as a teacher, I kind of, I, I kind of respect that and I really enjoy it because it makes me think a little bit more through about what I'm trying to get, you know, in today's lessons. And sometimes if the kids just don't have any feedback, 
like, okay, I think I covered it, but nobody had anything to say. So let's see, hopefully they got it, you know? So there's sometimes those questions as instructors, we need that feedback so we can kind of reevaluate what we're saying or how we're articulating what we're doing with our body. Yeah, I really agree with that. I'm, I'm a big, I look fast. I always ask questions. Um, and I, I always encourage all my players from the kids all the way through to all the adults to, you know, always be asking questions and, uh, as a as a kid, it was something that I hated at school. I never understood why. You know, you'd ask a question, the teacher would just be like, "That's that's it. That's the way it is." Or yeah. don't answer back. Or you know, sometimes you know, the teacher was maybe not in the best frame of mind, and they, you know, they wouldn't sort of. And I was, it, it never sat well with me, um, and I never knew why as a kid. I saw this; just, it just didn't seem right. And then, as I progressed as an adult, uh, I understand the importance of asking questions. Even even those questions that like you said, the kids' questions, and the, some of them are just like. As a coach, I make sure now that I'm like, do you have any questions about the technique we have just gone through? <laughs> because otherwise you are opening yourself up. And I, you know, I don't want to get any questions. And before you know it, some kids like, why is why is my ear tingling? And you're like, oh well, that's my fault. I, I wasn't I didn't I didn't <laughs> I didn't create the parameters. Yeah. I got <laughs> um, a hilarious so, story for you. I um I brought Ilias Iliadis to my dojo five years ago. And it was uh, it was pretty cool at the time. This is when Ilias uh, where he kind of first started touring around. So he was still a little bit of a kind of a mystery to the Westerners, you know, like a lot, you know, not like guys like Iliadis show up in California very often. So I've got Iliadis uh, teaching a kid's class and an adult's class. And he, his English was actually pretty good. He was able to, you know, articulate the lesson and kind of talk. And then he, he doesn't work with these particular kids. He doesn't know any of the kids. And I got this one kid in my dojo who was very new to judo and uh, he said, does anybody have any questions? And this kid, like, hand goes straight up in the air. And he spoke kind of fast where, you know, I think Ilias didn't even understand. Him. He's like, who's your favorite Ninja Turtle? <laughs> and Ilias looked at me and he, like, I'm like, I kind of just laughed a little bit, you know. He's like, because I wasn't sure if he knew what a Ninja Turtle was. You know, I'm like, he wants to know who your favorite Ninja Turtle is. That's all that kid. He don't care about that technique you just showed him. But he wants to know who your favorite Ninja Turtle and he was just stumped. He like couldn't even believe it. You know, he's like, I don't, I don't know what a ninja. <laughs> so yeah, the kids kind of, you know, some of the little kids, they got a lot of things going on in their mind. You never know. They keep you on your toes. Yeah, that's for sure. They, they may definitely have made me a, um, a more patient coach. Yeah. And yeah, that's why I enjoy coaching kids so much because you just never know what they're going to come out with. And they're, they're so funny. Like I've got a kid. So one of the rules I have in my club, <laughs> so we have the, we've got quite a large mat area. I think it's about 20 meters long. So we'll do the gymnastic rolls. You're doing like the rolls and the break falls and bear crawl. So you go down the mat and they have to run back. And if one kid walks, everyone does 10 push-ups. Okay. All right. So I'm just trying to get this culture going. Yeah, everyone's, we're doing a warm-up. You should, while you're walking type of thing. That's the way. So I was brought up with it. You know, and I'm like, right, okay, let's keep moving. I got this little kid. He's, he's um, five, I think, five or six called Liam. And I was like, is that right? Come on, everyone run back. And he's doing a slow-mo run. He's like this, doing a really like comical <laughs> slow mo run. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, well, you're not running, but I get what you're doing. <laughs> so, like, can't really tell you off for that because you know you're you're right. <laughs> yeah, you just you just end up. I just end up laughing. I think there's there's, um, there's, there's little comics, the little comedians. Yeah. They don't even realize it. So yeah, I had a, I had a super funny one just last week, and it was the first one I had like this. These kids are only five years old, and um, I told the little boy, I said, "All right, you're gonna go over here with Avery." And he looked at me, he's like, ah, "Does the big sigh drops his shoulder?" I'm like, "Why don't you want to go with Avery?" Because every time I go with Avery, she always tells me she's gonna marry me. 
(laughs) I've never even seen her speak to you. I never knew that that was the conversation that was going on. (laughs) So with five-year-olds, you never know. So let's talk, um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, because we're moving right along here, but uh, Zenbu Judo, I I, uh, grew up with Morgan. I mean, not grew up with Morgan, but we're the same era. So we kind of, uh, we're on the, the world tour. I've probably spent time with him in Korea, maybe even Japan and, Definitely hung out with him in California before. Like, you know, we, we, we kind of traveled around the same time. So I know it's a, a great judo club. And I see that you also have been dabbling a little bit in jujitsu, maybe even doing a little competition here and there. As far as your guys' club goes, do your kids do both judo and jujitsu? Or is it primarily judo for the kids and the jujitsu is adults? Or how does it work? So until recently, it was primarily just for adults. Okay. And then... So maybe... I think it was beginning of this year, maybe the back end of last year, maybe after the... Uh, maybe last uh, t- June 2020, I think we set up um, the the junior BJJ, and the the class has been primarily the ju- the judo play. It's a smaller class; it's not it's not as attracted as many of the kids. Right, uh, but it, it's um, I don't think it's attracted. Um, it's mainly attracted some of the judo kids that have gone to do it to do like an extra class. Uh, and enjoy and I think uh, uh, like a different instructor runs that class yeah. at this minute in time okay. um, and I think you know for, for the kids I think it's good for them to see different coaches as well because sure. um, I'm sure they get tired of me barking at them and yeah. telling them what to do and you know they get that different style and obviously it's different discipline it's a different sport um, so they get that side of things as well you know sweeping statement here but it's relatively similar for kids I think you know there's certain things that are different obviously uh, we got a couple of kids uh, uh train at one of the local Gracie clubs uh, and they've just come down uh, this past week actually to do a bit of judo. And so I had to say to them, you know, when, cause I think they're nine and 10 and I sort of said, listen, we don't do, we don't do arm muscle strangles with right. nine and 10 year olds here. Yeah. So just, just be careful, you know, don't, don't do any. Um, and then you know, but you know, still very good on the ground, probably better than our kids. But as soon as we got standing, um, a few of our kids were, launching them a little bit you know so it was it was quite nice and they you know they saw so i'm gone like yeah so they, they sort of um realized that side of things because uh we started off with groundwork and you know they were doing pretty well and uh but yeah sorry um and then the uh yeah so the kids class is, is developing and i think we're looking to start by more jujitsu uh but primarily as a as a senior class got it um do you have any thoughts club, oh, i was gonna say sorry as you know as a club though is the, the bjj side is very young Got it. Um, so the judo club, Morgan's been running the judo club. I think it's evolved from three different locations. Okay. Uh, so when I first came here in 2012, the club was actually in the Sydney Olympic Park. So it was in one of the venues from the Olympics. Wow. Um, and then in the, the time that I came back to England and then gone back to Australia, it moved to a full-time venue, which is where it is now, where I filmed that most recent um, judo fanatics video. So you see that nice big dojo. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the full-time setup there. And then, so the judo club had been around for a while. And then once he moved to the full-time setup, they introduced the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I think for seniors, it's only so maybe five or six years old. Okay. Um, so obviously it's getting more, a lot more established now. But when I first came out here, it was just a lot of white belts. Uh, you know, those white belts are now blue, purple, and moving through. So, What are your thoughts on uh, on training jiu-jitsu for, for high-level judo? Do you think that training jiu-jitsu for somebody who's on the elite squad that's trying to travel and be part of the IGF tour how important or do you think there is much benefit to dabbling in jiu-jitsu while you're training high-level judo it depends on the individual so let me let me go uh, explain what I mean by that so for me personally I, I benefited from doing bits of BJJ over the years 
So I first got exposed to it um, at Camberley Judo Club. They had um, a BJJ and we had to do that as part of our training program. Um, and I would say that doing the BJJ really toughened me up because there's certain things in BJJ you can do, you can't do in judo. So I went in there with a bit of a sort of naivety, thinking that in judo, you're not allowed to put your hands in people's faces. You can't just like pull the head back and stick the strangle in. So I'm just like casually, my head's popping out like a turtle. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden my head's getting ripped back and there's a couple of Polish boys there and they were tough men. Uh, and, you know, like just getting absolutely... Um, bashed around by them, toughened me up. And I, I would say with the Nationals when I won, partly the toughness I got from being bashed around the BJJ helped me um, in, the, in the Nationals. I, I, I would trace the direct line from that, you know, that event. And yeah. um, it's definitely opened up my groundwork uh, and, and helped me. But that, that's just me. I'm not going to say I want to say does it one size fits all. Like my strength and conditioning training will be different to somebody else's. And, sure. you know, the, the, the things we use to supplement our training um it's very individual. Like there's a lot of common things, but then there's also a lot of individual things that will, you know, so if someone wants to get better at judo, I'd say do more judo. Yeah. I think there's a, um, obviously there's a lot of shared techniques and a lot of things that could work really well, but the big difference that is hard to kind of intertwine is the pace. I think that the pace of judo, if, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that are really good jujitsu practitioners and they probably look at judo and they look at our nawaz or they look at the sequences that happen in a judo, in a judo tournament and in their minds they think, okay, if I was there, I would have done this, that, or the other thing. But the pace really changes things. And when you get on the floor, like I think a lot of people that just look at judo from the outside, they don't feel the conditioning. And in judo, like the pace is such a high level, like people that don't do it don't understand that when you hit the floor, you have a choice that you're making really quick. It's an instantaneous choice of... Am I going to proceed with trying to get something on the floor or am I going to wait for the mate? And that's a choice that people are making every single time they hit the floor. And I think the conditioning and the pace of what it's going to take to actually submit somebody or to pin somebody, it's going to require a lot of energy. And if I miss it, we're going to be back up on our feet in 15 seconds and I'm going to be exhausted. And I think that that's a thought that a lot of people don't talk about, but that's the obvious because you see people down there just catching a breath. A little frustrating to watch some of the highest level guys in, in judo because I love Nawaza and I think that there's a, a lot of room for improvement, but the rules kind of dictate our behavior and there's some of the best judo guys in the world who have almost zero ground game and I wish that they were kind of forced to fight a little bit. Yeah, I, I, it's something I, I've noticed a lot is um, how complacent people are in judo on the ground. Because you've got, so you, like you said there, you've got that, you've got to go. You've got a split second decision. And I think a lot of the time people go to the ground assuming that that person is not going to jump on them and get them. Yeah. And people sometimes, just, I've seen people go to the ground and they're just, can't, they're not even like full tucked in. They've still got one hand on the gate and they're just sort of like, you know, looking at the referee. And whilst they're looking at the referee, thankfully the other person has jumped on them and they're punishing them. And, you know, I give that, it still gives me a little bit of faith because there's still the people out there that are, you know, still pushing for that groundwork to get the finish. Um, but I think some people seem to take it really, uh, like a real casual about the defensing ground. Right. Um, and then they're just making silly mistakes. But yeah, the that's where I've come on. Uh, that's where I've come on done a lot in, in BJJ competitions when I've been beaten. It's because I've just gone too hard. Uh, I've just slipped into judo mode and I've just gone and then. You know, again, the fight, some uh, six minutes, um, uh, you know, some of the rounds, <laughs> I, I just go too hard, too fast. And then by like sort of 
quite early on that my, my forearms are blown out. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm just sort of like, oh, should have, should have relaxed on this one. And yeah. And then that's when I sort of been tied up and turned to a pretzel and yeah. Yeah. The pace is different and it's definitely, you know, different games for sure. I mean, I think that the the two work really well together and I think it's a lot of fun to practice both judo and jujitsu for lots of people. But like you said, I mean, if you want to go to a high level, you know, it's kind of entertaining to listen to people on podcasts or to listen to, you know, some of the, the feedback you see in some of the forums about, you know, this judo guy will beat this jujitsu. The truth is that no elite judo player is going to become an elite jujitsu player without practicing jujitsu and vice versa. It's just never going to happen. Yeah. So there's the, the, the best jujitsu guys in the world will never make it on the IGF circuit. And it goes both directions. They're very, very, um, we're specialists at the end of the day. We're, we're both specialists and we have rules that dictate why we became specialists at those particular parts of this, this game that maybe at one point in history was one game. Yeah, I mean, you see it a lot in other sports. I mean, you'll have it with uh, when these uh, cocky English people come over that play rugby and think they can all of a sudden start playing American football. Right. Right. Just because you're throwing a similar shaped ball around doesn't mean there's anything remotely similar, right? Yeah. Um, and then, yes, there are a lot of... Comp- I, I, I use the example of rugby league and rugby union as well. Two completely different sports, but they, they are similar enough that you can... Okay, funny shaped ball... You know, they've got to through the goal to try and all that kind of thing. But they are completely different. And you get people doing the crossover every now and again. Someone does okay. But you don't get, like, high-level rugby league players yeah. automatically just being high-level rugby um, rugby union players. Uh, so, it's, for me, it's the same. Very similar with uh, the judo and the BJJ. Like, if you're going to get um, – and wrestling. Wrestling quite often gets thrown into the mix. For sure. Uh, I know people that enjoy doing wrestling – as a uh, just a crossover but for me it's just it's a way of training something that's similar enough that gets you thinking and it gets you active and you you know you're training but uh, and it adds value right but because sometimes if you do if just all you're doing is judo and your brain just gets tired of it and your body just gets tired of it uh, and then just by doing something a little bit different will just gets you engaged. And then, you know, at the end of the week when you're tired, you are another judo session. You're just like, oh, come on now. You got to go and do BJJ. You're like, yeah, no worries. And you, you end up getting a good hour out of the training session because you're engaged in a different way. So I think it works really well in that context. But yeah, like you say, if you're going to be a high level of, of any of the disciplines, you've really just got to make that your main focus. Right. Uh, and that's got to be, you know, what you, you set your, your, your sort of training program around. Right. I guess it's, it's, uh, the truth is that most of these conversations are by very recreational people that, like you said, that crossover may happen just fine. Like a local judo guy may go to some specific local jujitsu school and dominate people or vice versa. But at the highest level, that's not happening in either direction. I think that that's obvious. And and all the high level judo and jujitsu guys I know have the utmost respect for both arts and you know, all of them seem to dabble a little bit, but it's just like kind of a personal preference of mine. I've always loved Nawaza, and I just see that the, um, in some ways, the IJF circuit allows it. It just depends on the tournament, it seems. Sometimes it seems like, wow, they're allowing a lot of Nawaza today. And then just when you think they're kind of going to make that shift and allow a little more than the next event, it's like, oh, no, they're not allowing anything. So it's uh, very subjective, I think, the way they're refereeing it. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall in some of the uh, referee meetings before the tournament starts. And, you know, okay, we're going to, I imagine they turn around and say, right, well, less than he was a bit too much last time, a little bit less. And then yeah. what happens is they go the, they go the other way. 
Right. And then the next tournament, they're like, right, come on, guys. We said, like, you know, tighten it up, but you, you're giving them two seconds on the ground. Then they go the other way and they go too much. And right. hopefully one day we'll find that nice equilibrium. But one of the things we have out here, so something Morgan, um, so there's a thing called the Black Belt Registry. Um, and it's um, uh, all the you know, black belts in, uh, I, I don't know if it's, I think it might just be our state. Um, you can become a member and you pay a membership and then that money goes towards training and funding like i know they've brought in um people from um overseas uh, from japan to teach and stuff but that so that that fund they run um, a prize fight and it's a kosen judo competition okay and they do it as a team event um so every year they have this uh so the rules are you familiar with the rules for kosen judo um i'm not sure if i am I mean, we we've had a few attempts at something similar i don't know exactly how they make the rules so no so well the rules we we go with um leg rubs are allowed Everything, all, all the scoring systems the same, okay? Uh, but then if you go to the ground, there's no time limit on Niwaza. Okay. And you can stand back up and it's Mate, but it, it just continues. There's no area limits when you go to the ground. It, it just keeps on going. Um, and I'm pretty sure the fight's just 10 minutes. And it, and it's just a, um, and it's a really good day. Like so we, we do it as teams and there's no weight groups. It's just a team of five. You flip a coin and then one team puts a player up and then the next team gets picked first. Um, and it's it's just a good day. And we, we get some players that just turn up, like never compete apart from in this tournament. Yeah. Uh, and it's usually in January, the beginning of the year, just to help people get into it. But it's a really nice sort of middle ground between like the IGF competitions, going to a pure BJJ competition. And you have this Kosen Judo, which sort of bridges that gap a little bit. Yeah, I that, that sounds interesting. I've always thought that that's the uh, the ultimate grappling sport would include tons of negotiations that would never end, but somewhere in between those two, right, where you don't allow the jujitsu guy to pull guard, but you also can't allow the judo guy to avoid groundwork, right? If you had the if you put those two together in some way, and I think that prize fighting, you know, before the UFC was so big, and these kind of negotiations have happened for many prize fights over the last 50 years, you know, okay, okay, I'm going to fight you in a ring, but here's the rules. You got to do this. Here's how long we're going to fight. Once we tie up, you can't punch. Like I've seen it all. There's so many different types of fights and everyone's going to negotiate to make sure that their style is the one that's going to, going to win. But yeah, I always did think that the perfect grappling match would be a fine line right there in between the current rule set for judo and jujitsu. So that sounds like Kosen judo could fill that little gap right there, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It's good. And it's a team event. I love team events. Yeah. I think they're, um, because they're, they're individual enough because you're still the, the only person out in the middle of the mat. But when you go to a normal competition, like you only care about yourself. Right. You don't care about what anyone else is doing. But when you've got a team, there's a bit more atmosphere. You're cheering each other on. And they're a nice, they're a nice little change to pace. We saw that at the Olympics when they had the, the team event, right? The Olympics. Yeah. Um, it was great to see that, you know, you saw the difference maybe between the teams where they were, more encouraging of the teammates versus the other team that was sort of a little bit more reserved. You know, right, I don't need to right. name names or like, I'll let you pick which one you think I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, with the energy and the the culture definitely comes out in those things. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun to see because I think that's the thing about judo is that there's so many people around the world that we are following the the Japanese culture in some ways. And it's all about reserving and kind of saving face and kind of hiding your emotions. And that's kind of a, a lot of judo is that way. And then you have the Brazilians who are going to be, you know, celebrating and showing you their true colors and showing you how they feel. And 
but that's also entertainment. You know, people want to see the true emotion. You know, when you look at like Ono who wins the Olympic gold and, and really doesn't have any emotion on his face, it's almost strange, right? Yeah. Sort of. Uh, yeah. In a weird way, right? I always idolized that as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, you just won the biggest tournament and then you just tie in your belt. Like it's just another day in the week. I'm like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I think I was always worried about doing some kind of silly celebration and then, yeah. <laughs> and then making a fool of myself. I was like, no, I'm just going to do the calm, calm and casual. But yeah, I get what you mean. Um, it is nice to see, um, it's nice to see the emotions of the athletes. I think you see that at the Olympics more than anywhere. I think the, the Olympics bring that brings it out in, um, in, in the sport compared to a lot of the other events. Right. The, the Olympics really brings out that emotion. I think in some players, yeah, and some players, and, and, and even with the Japanese, at the end of the day, the Japanese are so good, and there's so many champions. You know, you go to a place like Tokai University, and you see all the Olympic champions on the wall, and there's just, there's so many of them. Like, your, your Olympic or your world bronze medal practically means nothing if you're from Japan, right? If you came, you know, you finished your career, and all you got was a, a bronze at the Worlds was your top. I mean, it's just, it's nothing to brag <laughs> about, you know? So these guys, like, that are aiming for Olympic gold, like, that's what puts them on the pedestal in Japan. Anything less is really not much so they two stories right that really really sort of uh, impacted on me right so the first one when i was in japan uh, the second time was 2010 so i went out to watch my mate michael holly find the world championships and then i stuck on um i think it was there for six weeks afterwards and then so nishiyama won the silver medal got beat by um, Iliadis in the final right yeah um, and he trained at scuba and then i was at scuba two weeks after the olympics uh, sorry, the, the World Championships. Um, he was a Negikomi partner for the um, uh, University Team Championships okay. coming up. Wow. Um, and there's uh, Nishiyama just off the back of a world silver medal was just Negikomi partner. He was just getting slammed around the map because the rest of the team were going to the uh, University Championships. Uh, they needed people to throw. Wow. I was like, man, if someone's like a, a silver medalist in um, the UK World Championships, uh, I couldn't imagine them being getting thrown around two weeks after the world championships. Um, and then the second, uh, the third time I was in Japan uh, was after 2012, the Olympics. Um, and it was, I think Tokai had won the university championship. So it was, I was a bit later on in the year. I, I was there at the time. Um, and then they had this dinner. So I went along to this dinner. Um, I was like, there's myself, there's actually another Australian um, there and uh, a Norwegian player that I've uh, like known on the circuit. We were, just, we were there, we were the only three sort of non-Japanese players there. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I knew he was presenting and they, they presented the uh, the university championship players, right? And then there was, I think it was Nikiyama, the, is it uh, the 73 boy? Have I said that right? Nikaya? Nikaya, sorry. Yeah. Nikaya, the 73 boy, he was there. And then a couple of the girls, I think, medaled. Anyway, they did a presentation for the university team and then everyone starts eating and, you know, drinking or like going there. And then they're like, oh, stop, stop, stop. And then they called back and they'd forgot to, um, they'd forgot to uh, announce the Olympic players. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Japan. <laughs> I was like, man, like, if you had, I think it was four, four Olympic medalists from the club. None of them, uh, they're all bronzes or silver, right? And then I was like, man, if it was like four medalists, well, I don't like... Get four Olympic medalists in England together, you know, it'd be, that'd be the, the main focus of the event, right? Yeah. And it was just like an afterthought to these guys. I just thought, wow, you know, it just, it sort of, it just really humbles, it humbled me because I was just like, well, you know, these guys are just, you know, forgotten about type of thing, not in a nasty way. Like, well, like I'm not, I'm nothing special either. So, right. you know, it really sort of helped me to remember not to get ahead of myself. You know, it's put into context, you know, yeah, at the end of the sure. day, 
you know, as, as much as winning these medals, I'm sure is nice. Um, they are just medals at the end of the day. Yeah. Speaking of the Olympics, um, they just made the announcement, I guess, just during the Olympics this year that uh, 2032 is coming back to Australia. So Brisbane Olympics in, uh, yeah, it's a little time to go, but um, time goes fast as we're getting older. Is there is there already talk of excitement? Are, are judo players excited that the Olympics are coming back home? Yeah, there's there's a little bit. That I think the problem is with some of the players, um, as will have happened for some of the Japanese players, uh, you know, always happens when the home nation. Uh, you know, they're going it's 11 years away that. Yeah. How old am I going to be in 11 years? You know, I, I'm, I'm a still, you know, you know, some of them are halfway through their senior careers now and they think, you know, maybe one more, they go, can I hold on for 11 years? Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of that going around from some of the players I know, I think. But then, yeah, so you look at some of the other players that are, that are younger uh, who would be in their, pri- like, you know, aiming for something like that. And yeah, there's a little bit of excitement. And I think some of them don't quite, also understand what it means as well right just yet uh if that makes sense i think you know they're a bit they haven't been exposed enough to international judo to fully appreciate what it means to you know have the olympics in in your country you know i remember like leading into london 2012 uh you know everything was just all the training and uh all the competitions everything just the the, the buzz around it was just, you know was amazing not just the yeah, players I think, but i think the coaches i think the coaches and people like you that run programs are you know, they, you understand the significance of bringing home, but you know, there's a lot of different things. There's the possibility of an influx of, of cash, possibly there's going to be some investment and in whether that's infrastructure or, or programs. I mean, a lot of the things can happen, you know, over the next 10 or 11 years, because I'm sure there's somebody in Australia going, how do we get more medals? Because at the end of the day, that's what these countries want to do. And Australia is always one of those countries that's up there in the medal hunt trying to get medals. And, you know, you can look at a sport like judo and probably doesn't get a lot of attention when it comes to the Olympic Federation within Australia because it's not a big medal-gaining sport. But I would assume that there's somebody there going, what can we do to help judo over the next 10 years so judo does get on the roadmap in, in Australia? And for me as a fan of judo, you know, I look at like Australia and, hey, like judo's not a big, you know, Australia's not a big, strong judo country, but hey, hopefully they can do something to change that with the Olympics coming. Yeah, they've just set up a full-time centre in Victoria, down in uh, in Melbourne. So I think that's one. Of, yeah, that's been one of sort of the first steps towards building a like a stronger pathway right. uh, to have that support for the athletes that you know are, are looking towards. Because up till now, I don't think there's really been much of a. There's, there's been pathways. There's always pathways, but I don't know how managed they've been. Uh, I think a lot of players. I think there's been a lot of individual players who have gone off and sort of done their own thing. You know, right. players have gone overseas yeah. um, and it's been off their own back um, to try and find that kind of uh, training center. So uh, I think it's good that they're building, you know, they've, they've put one in in Victoria. It'd be interesting to see how, how that all comes together over the next couple of years uh, with the up and coming athletes. Um, yeah, there's definitely, there's more interest from the sporting bodies. Uh, and, uh, you know, you put it into context. So Australia, three athletes, top 16, uh, for Australia, that's amazing. Yeah, right? so you got you got like I know they're looking for medals, but still, you know, put into context, it's it's something to work with, right. um, and it and it's just those little baby steps all the time. Um, and there's a lot of people making making more noise. You know, he's got Matt Aquino uh, down in Canberra, is pushing pushing things along. Ivo uh, de Santos, who's also in uh, Melbourne, right. you know, he's trying to push things along. And you know, they've obviously Matt's 
been involved in the judo fanatics for a long time and Evo uh, de Santos has got his new I saw he's got a new release and yeah. you know, so these coaches are getting more exposure uh, and they've always been here yeah. but they've just not had maybe the platform um, to really sort of get their voices heard uh, and I think that's being noticed more from what I can see which is which is good yeah. and you know from from a country who has no real expectations on the judo athletes it, it's good it gives the athletes chance to actually grow without having that pressure of uh, you know, the, the weight of the, the country upon them right. um, to, to really perform, right? And hopefully that will come one day. Hopefully yeah. that will come. And then that's a different challenge for some of the athletes to, to struggle with. Yeah. And I think um, including Australia from the IGS point of view, I think including Australia in the uh, the Asian region for, for the Continental Championships, I think that's going to be a big game changer. And it's going to make people have to up their training to be able to compete in that that region. Uh, I think that's going to really help develop the the sport. Yeah. So tell us, tell tell me about that, or tell I, I'm not super aware of how that went down. They took the Oceana Championships. Is that gone? Or? Yeah. So the Oceana Championships gone. It's now the Asian Pacific Championships. Okay. Um, and there, there just wasn't enough depth of yeah. player yeah. In, in the in the Oceana region. And it, it, what it, what it means now is the players have to. They just got to, they're going to have to up the game. Yeah. Like some, I'm, I'm sure. Like well, I've done it as well, where I've like rested on my laurels a little bit at times, and it's just, not, it's just not going to allow that to happen. The players are going to have to prove themselves. They're going to have to, you know, be winning medals, uh, and to win medals, they're going to have to be more professional with the training, uh, and it's just going to have that knock-on effect, I think. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely tougher when you got continental championships with the Japanese and the Koreans and the Mongolians, and whole different world than the old Oceania championships, I guess. So. Yeah, when you compare them to say like the Europeans, you know, you look at like the European Championships, and then you look at who who's in that mix, and then you look at the world, and you, you just you, you know yeah. you see you look across, and you're like, it's just so strong. The same with the Asian, uh, the uh, Pan America is it Pan America? Yeah, Pan American yeah. is a lot smaller. You know, as then, well. Yeah, but still, it was nowhere near as small as the Oceania. Right. If you look at any of the old pool sheets, you'd be amazed at the you know some of the some of the categories of like three people in it. Oh, wow. You're like, how's that a continental championships? You know, you compare it to something like the Pan Americas even, right? There's yeah. still quite a bit of depth in some of like, you know, the Americans, the Canadians, some of the South, um, South American countries, you know, some really strong players knocking around, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and is, there's still some depth that you can look at it and go, that's a continental championships. There's players in there that are meddling internationally and, you know, pushing on. And so, yeah, no, I think it's a really good thing for, for the region. Yeah. Man, this is uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. We're past an hour already. I think we, you and I can go oh, yeah. on this forever. But before we go, <laughs> I want to talk about your uh, your stuff with Judo Fanatics. This is the Judo Fanatics podcast, and uh, you've got three titles out with Judo Fanatics right now. Tell us about them. I know you got you got all about your hips, and you got Ashiwaza. And now for me, I'm an old man, and Ashiwaza is uh, hey man, it's old man judo. When this is the kind of judo I like to do. Uh, we, I always tell my students, you know, we talk about Ashiwaza with the kids. Ashiwaza is some of the hardest things to make work in judo. It takes a long time to work on the timing. It seems easy to practice, but it's hard to execute. It's hard to actually become successful with Ashiwaza. But once you kind of get that feeling, it's a lot of fun. Tell us about your work with uh, Judo Fanatics and tell us about uh, some of your DVDs you've put together. So yeah, when um, Travis asked me to, to put something together, I went to, went to the drawing board because so I didn't really know where to start. And I was like, okay, I want to do one on Ashiwaza. Because um, for me, exactly like what you just said there, 
same feelings towards it. It's so hard to learn. And then once you've got them, it's one of the easiest things to do. Like, it's yeah. painfully easy. It takes years. Like, you know, I say this to my students, because um, you can muscle your way through an Ogoshi. Right. You can completely mess up a Sienagi and you can still throw with it because you just drive. And the more you drive with the foot sweep, the further away from it you're going to get. So the complete opposite. Um, so you, you just can't. It's either on or off. You either can do foot sweeps, really, or you can't. Um, and well, once you can, it's just ridiculous. It's, just, it's like nothing. Like You do a Diashi Harai on someone and they just fall on the floor and you're like, is that it? I, I quite I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so I started doing this DVD on on Ashiwaza, and then before I knew it, I'd done an hour and a half just talking about Akuriashi Harai. And the plan was to do uh, Akuriashi Harai, uh, Diashi Harai, and then what became the third one, which was the awesome Ashiwaza. So that was meant to be one. And wow. I was like, man, I've got like, I ended up with like four hours of footage here. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up splitting those two. I just did one on the Kuriyashi Harai and went through basically, uh, you know, how I teach all my students, so how I learned with the, the solo movement drills uh, and then building that up into uh, practical application and using it for setups. Um, and it's just something that's very much ingrained in my judo and, and very much something I, I teach. Um, pretty much every session I do, near enough, I use Ashiwaz as a warm-up. Uh, just get people moving their feet, uh, get them warm, and then then we'll do whatever the session is. But for me, uh, like full sweeps, the Ashi Harai, Kiri Ashi Harai, um, Harai Surikami Ashi, great. All three, phenomenal throws, love them. Uh, and then hip throws, um, I've always been a big hip thrower. I remember getting asked once uh, what my what my style of judo is. <laughs> it's uh, basically I summed it up with uh, to stick the leg across and hope for the best. Um, <laughs> and I never really had any fear turning in. You know, you get some people so you don't like turning the backs. And yeah. I think this was more more back when leg grabs were available. Um, and you know, either people were scared of turning the backs because they're going to get like Tigerumad or Sakurinaga or whatever. Uh, and there's that little bit of hesitancy there. Uh, I think that's gone. So I think hip throws are a lot more popular now. I mean, they've always been around, obviously, but I think, right. but yeah, I've always, I've always loved to send my leg across Harai, you know, just Ogoshi, Ukigoshi, just whatever, just, just get my hips across um, and just, just go big. Um, so that's the, the, the basis of the all in the hips. And, and then, yeah, so part three was the, the awesome Ashiwaza, which was, sort of the, the evolution of that first one, really. Um, also to Gary, it's just been my favourite technique pretty much from the beginning, really. Also to Oharai, just again, just getting that leg across and just seeing which way we go. Keeps things exciting. Yeah, of all, of all the judo that I like to watch, I mean, the, the hips are hips are important. You know, that was a big thing when I was a kid. It was always like, that kid has good hips, good hips. Good hips are what makes good judo players typically. And, um, you see the hips in today's game in a big way. And I see, you know, the Georgians, um, I actually interviewed a few months back was uh, shoddy on the house. I don't know if you've watched too much. The Canadian player, amazing. Ogo. she shoots that hip in there and, you know, he, he takes people for rides and it's a lot of fun to watch once you get people up there. Um, yeah, that, um, his, his, uh, interaction with the German. Yeah. Frey. 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 Yeah. Oh, that, that hip exchange interaction. So I use that. That's one of, uh, that's a, like a, a hip drill exercise. I'll, I get my place to do down the matter. My coach used to get me to do. And I was just watching that and I'm just like, yes, that's the best example. So as soon as I'm like, right guys, we're in this hip drill. And I'm like, this is what I want it to look like. Right. Um, and I use that video all the time since then. It's one of the, it's just, yeah, it's phenomenal. And then your Ashiwaza, you actually said earlier in the conversation that you kind of took a liking to Ashiwaza by working with some of the younger kids when you were growing up. And I think that that's, 
That's important for a lot of our listeners out there to hear. You know, a lot of our listeners are not just judo players, but a lot of them are coaches. And and as coaches, we're always trying to figure out how to how to make these classes work. Like you said, sometimes you've got the big kid and the small kid, but the Ashiwaza is something that you can implement into your game and and do it in a safe way to where you can play your judo without overpowering a smaller athlete. You can catch them and make it seem like they slipped on a banana peel. And that's Ashiwaza. Fun stuff. Yeah, something Brian was really big on was the Ashiwaza. Uh, we'd, we'd spend a lot of time uh, working on it. And again, going back to what I mentioned about with the uh, training with the, the women at the club as well. Uh, and again, it was like, nope, you're not allowed to do anything that's going to require strength, right? You've got to use technique. So Ashiwaza. And it was just foot sweeps uh, and then coaches, OGs, these kind of techniques. And that's pretty much all I was allowed to do. Uh, and then, yeah, so training with the kids and just working that nice light movement and then working with these other players. Uh, and then, uh, like, it wasn't all smooth sailing. I have to mention uh, there's a guy called John Goodwin who's another one of the older players at the club. Um, and he was a policeman. So he'd work shifts. So we'd either, we'd always train like five, six in the morning uh, because it would either be at the end of his night shift or just before he went on his day shift. So he'd, he'd spend some time with me. Uh, and he was, he was just an incredible um, at working his balance in terms of being light and going from light to being incredibly uh, rooted to the ground. Like he was impossible to foot sweep. Just, just one of these people that just have this innate ability just to uh, switch that on and off. Uh, so I'd, I'd practice coaching on him. He was a phenomenal coach. So we were working on it and he had a, a shin guard. He had to have a shin guard on the back of his leg because we'd spend like pretty much an hour with me just kicking him in the back of the leg yeah. uh, in the morning. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and then it's one of those things that's just clicked in after a couple of years. Um, and it's, again, another one of those throws that uh, I use in terms of as a direct attack and just to set up, the, uh, I love using coaches as a setup, but I think as a coach, I always remind my players that you're going to kick and be kicked. Yeah. Um, and as that timing comes along um, and it's just part of the process, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but just to persevere with it. Uh, and I try to set the expectation in terms of that longevity. Yeah, I think what you're um, talking about with uh, the guys, you said John Goodwin, uh, Goodwin, Godwin? Yeah, yeah Goodwin. Uh, what you talked about, like weight distribution, that's something that's really hard to teach, you know, but we know when we're facing somebody that really knows how to kind of, like you said, root the, their weight or or seem really light in a minute later. And I think that's a that's a high level skill that's very hard to articulate into words on, you know, how do you and I was having this conversation with some of my adult beginners just this week and we were talking about Ashiwaza. And it's a lot about weight distribution. They start attacking my leg and I take my weight off it, it just kind of moves out of the way so simply. And I think those lessons are hard. It just takes feel. You know, it's one of those things you just got to practice, but it's very low impact. It's very easy to practice, like you were saying earlier in the conversation. Once you get it figured out, it's a very easy way to run around. I, you know, sometimes I can do randori with my players, not even in super good shape, but I can go all night long because I'm really good at conserving and hitting the foot sweeps, and I can have a great time doing judo and very low impact on my body that's starting to age. So uh, Ashiwaza is the best, man. This is uh, this is what judo is all about, and I think that anybody out there that's listening would attest to say that once you hit your first effortless foot sweep, you're hooked. You're going to just chase that and look for that feeling. I mean, that's what judo is all about. When you get that foot sweep, because sometimes you can land the big ogoshi, right? But you felt yourself. You, you, you grunted and groaned and you got them over. But when you get somebody to foot sweep perfect and they go flying through the air, you're like, sometimes you're surprised that it worked yourself. And that's the aim, I think. But, uh, and this has been a lot of fun. Um, all of the listeners out there, you should go to judofanatics.com, go into the search bar, 
and uh, search up David's stuff. It's uh, super good stuff. Got some great instructionals. Tell our listeners where else they can find you and uh, give us a plug for your podcast as well. Yeah, so the the Judo Way of Life, uh, you can pretty much search that, I think, on uh, most things, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. So, yeah, the Judo, uh, I've got a website as well, and that's what the, the name of the podcast is, which can be found on Spotify and Apple and all those things. But, yeah, if you go to thejudowayoflife.com, uh, it's all there. All right. David, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, doing this again sometime, and uh, I'm going to have to make an Australian vacation at some point and tour around, see my old buddies, and... Uh, do some training, but it's, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And yeah, nice. I thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 